Well, good morning, church family. Thank you for that. My name is Ashton, and I have the privilege of serving as your pastor of adult ministry here at Church at the Mill, and I have the opportunity on that team to work with some truly gifted and talented and godly people as we think about and as we pray about and as we strategize ways in which our church can help make disciples out of adults. And inside of that strategy lives something that is relatively new to our church, and that's our biblical counseling ministry, and it's only been started for about the past six or seven years. And inside that ministry, we've seen a lot of growth and a lot of development, and I am so extremely proud of what the Lord has done in that. But as much as I could brag about the ministry itself, I feel the need to try and share something with you this morning that I think is important. And I'm not trying to be cutesy when I say this to you, but you need to understand something about biblical counseling, and it's this. It can't be trusted. That's right. I'm saying that. Biblical counseling cannot be trusted. What I mean by that is I went into this with you guys in mind. X number of years ago, you guys were going through a lot of different stuff. You guys were coming with anxiety and depression and marriage issues and trauma and all these types of things. And as a church and as a pastor, I had you in mind to try and find ways in which we could minister to you where you guys were at. And what I thought was going to be a journey of growth and transformation for you guys ended up being a journey of growth and transformation for me. God turned it around. He did, a, he did a Jesus juke on me all of a sudden. And again, what I thought was supposed to be you focused ended up being me focused. And over the past few years as I've learned and I've studied it, I've dove into God's word, I, I didn't always love what God brought to the surface inside of my heart, if I'm being real and transparent with you. As I began to trust God's word, and I, and I thought I believed as a Baptist in the sufficiency of God's word, but when I really read it and I allowed my heart to just engage with the scriptures and allow my heart to engage with the God of the scriptures, I saw some things that are inside of me that God said, we, we, we got to get that stuff out. There, there is worship going on inside of your heart, and it doesn't always resonate with me, and it doesn't look like me all the time. And so there was selfishness that I didn't know was there. There was pride going on inside of me that I wasn't aware of. There were deceitful desires that I didn't know how destructive those can be because I just learned to just live with them. And I'd fall into that horrible habit that sometimes we fall into of saying, when, I, when I'm not loving God and loving other people, the reason I'm not doing that is, is because of somebody else or some people and circumstances that are making that difficult to do. And if those things would change or if that person would change, then I would change and everything would be just lovely. And I believe that lie was living out that lie in so many ways. So I did not expect when I got into biblical counseling for the word of God to transform me and to go on a journey of transformation and change and maturity, the likes of which I don't know that I ever have experienced. But this sermon is not about me this morning. This sermon is not even about the biblical counseling ministry. This sermon is about God and his word. And how he has loved us so much to reveal himself and to reveal truth to us through his word. And so if you have your Bibles with me, turn to 2 Timothy 3.16. Just one verse this morning. 2 Timothy 3.16. I'll give you a second to get there. 2 Timothy 3.16. I also have it on the screen in front of you. God's word says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, and for reproof, and for correction, and training in righteousness. 
A very short verse. It's only one verse we're going to look at this morning. But the outline of it actually lays out pretty clearly. There's not a lot of technicality there. It's a pretty straightforward verse. But just because it's short and it's not technical doesn't mean that it's not powerful. And so one of the first things I want you to see as we examine our verse this morning is that very first phrase. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And when you read that phrase, I want you to understand this point. Then when it says all Scripture is breathed out by God, it means that all Scripture comes from God. When the Word says all Scripture is breathed out by God, it means that all Scripture comes from God. All of it, all the way from the book of Genesis to Revelation and everything else in the middle, it comes from God. It is God-breathed. It comes from Him. And so, therefore, it carries with it some of the characteristics and attributes of God that I want to highlight for you. So when Scripture says it's breathed out by God, the first thing I want you to understand about that is that it carries God's authority. When it's breathed out by God, when it's given by God, when he reveals himself to it, it also carries with it God's authority. Just because it's written doesn't mean it's any less authoritative than if God himself had spoken it live and in person. It's not as if we can look at this book and just say, well, it's just a book. I have lots of books. The library is full of books. So what does this book have to do with my life, and why should I submit my life to this particular book? If it was just a book, then I would agree with you. There's lots of books that we can pick up and follow and glean uh, nuggets of truth from, but this is God-breathed. His authority carries over into the words that are written there for us. We understand this perfectly in modern times. Think about a personal will. If you don't have a will, it's a good idea that you get a will. You need to have that. Tracy and myself sat down with a lawyer some years ago, and we expressed to him some of our interests of the things that should happen to our children if something tragically were to happen to both of us, and what should happen to our assets and our monies and our house and all these types of things. And even though in our absence, the will, that sheet of paper that we have, carries the authority and wishes that Tracy and I want to happen, want to have happen in our absence. And so it carries the authority of mom and dad, of Tracy Nashton, if something were to happen to us. Sorry, Blakely Tucker and uh, Blake, you don't get the money early. There's not a whole lot there to have in the first place. But it carries our authority with it, and so we understand that. Another area in which I want you to think about that all scriptures God breathe is that the character of God is found inside of scripture. There's a tendency sometimes, I think, when we read that verse, that all scriptures God breathed and it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, that the human heart doesn't love those two words, reproof and correction. Doesn't that just give you the warm fuzzies? Ooh, reproof and correction. Tell me more about that, Ashton. It, it's almost as if we can read that verse and read a tone into it, as if God wants to pick up the Bible and just start beating you with it. It's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and poof, training in righteousness. Don't, don't read a tone into this verse if there's, if, there's a, if there's a tendency to maybe do that. Instead, I want you to remember the author of the one who's writing these words to you. The one who created you. The one who loves you. The one who sent his Savior to die for you. The one who is there for you in ways that no human relationship can even come close to. 
who is there for you on your worst days and your worst seasons with grace and love and hope and forgiveness. That's the God that weaves himself into scripture. And so you, when you read difficult words like reproof or correction, don't run away from it as if, ah, I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to think about that. I pray that that invites you in because of God's character and his authority to say, listen, when, when God wants to speak to me and if there's things in my life that need rebuking, I want to hear that because I can trust you because of your character and your authority. And God, where you want to correct something in my life, I don't push back. I lean in because I trust your authority and I trust the character of the one who says that to me. And so I want you to see that all scripture comes from God and it carries his authority and also his character into his word. As we read on through our verse a little bit more, we see four specific ways in which God's word is profitable to us. It literally says, all scripture is God breathed and is profitable, and then lists off four ways. It says teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, if you're a good Bible student, you'll notice uh, that when you read scripture, very, very rarely do just random words end up in the page without any order or organization or rhyme or reason. Maybe in a few spots it's just a long list of, of some certain things, but more often than not there, there's a strategy behind it, there's a thought in mind. DJ does a wonderful job of this oftentimes. We'll, there'll be four or five or six things, and at first glance it just looks like they're just four or five things, but then he'll group them together into these three words are here because they represent a certain, certain category. Category. And these five words exist because they're in a certain category as well. It's the same with these three words. It's not as if you, well, well you could just choose. You can put training in front of teaching, and teaching can go third. You can put correction in the beginning. There's a process of transformation and change that God's word has laid out for us. When we think about how first the word of God teaches us, and then rebukes us, helps us to understand that sometimes the things that we've been thinking and understanding, the attitudes that we've been having, maybe weren't, didn't line up with the teaching that we'd been giving. If we recognize that, that some things were wrong now as we lean into God's teaching, we understand there's some things I need to correct. I need to think rightly about these types of things. And then lastly, if I understand rightly, now I need to do these things consistently. I need to be trained in that. I need to do that consistently. It's around this time of year when you think about a process and a change where we're on the beginning of summertime, right? And maybe like me, you've looked in the mirror and the old dad bod, the old summer bod isn't quite ready where it needs to be. And so we begin to do what oftentimes we do around this time of year. We start to get our bodies back into shape and we start thinking about what we need to do and how we need to do it. And so one of the first things that maybe you do is you go online, you start researching. You get on the computer, okay, I need to start thinking about, okay, what do I need to do to get healthy? How do I lose a few pounds? You start reading the, the internet a little bit, and that's your, that's your teaching phase. You're allowing the internet, you're allowing some experts to speak into you about what it means to, to lose weight and how to be healthy and, and how you need to eat this and not eating that. And as you're learning and as you're experiencing that, you're starting to see, okay, I, I, I get this. I, I'm understanding some things, and, and what I have been doing has not been working, so I need to stop that. Based on what the expert said, now I know that I need to stop, stop doing that. The things that I've been eating, how I've been moving my body, these types of things. And so I understand I need to stop some things. Now I understand that also maybe I need to start doing some things. I need to correct it. I need to correct my diet. I need to correct how I'm working out by getting some steps in or lifting weights or whatever goes on. 
But it's not enough just to have a game plan and sit in the correction stage. You have to start to do that consistently. You just can't sit there in the correction stage without actually doing it. You can write it all down. You can do all the research. But eventually, Monday morning, 5 o'clock, the alarm's going to go off, and you're in that moment as to whether you're going to get up and go to the gym or go for a walk or whatever it is, or whether you're just going to stay in bed and roll over and say, ah, we'll just you know, f- forget it. I'm just not going to worry about this morning. And so we understand that there's a process that goes about even in the process of getting healthy and losing weight. And also there's a process, the way in which God has for us to be saved, but also to be sanctified. Think about, if you're a Christian this morning, think about how you got saved. There was a time when somebody, either at a camp or a church service or something, spoke and taught and helped you understand what the gospel means, what, what Christ says about you. And, and then he probably, around there, there was some rebuking of things. The way that you understood yourself, you recognized that this is wrong. I've been thinking wrongly about that. I've been thinking wrongly about who I am and how somebody has a relationship with God and how we get to heaven. And now, because of the teaching, I'm thinking more correctly about that. And then I need to be trained in, in, in righteousness. I need to be trained of how, once I get saved, in order to begin to live out the gospel and the truth that have been happening inside of me. And so we understand that these three, excuse me, these four words are not just random and thrown out there in any order, but there is a God-ordained process weaved into these four words that help us understand how we transform and change, again, not only in salvation, but also in sanctification and in discipleship. And it's this process that oftentimes we use in counseling when we come alongside of somebody using the Word of God and even trusting the Word of God for a process of how that goes about happening. Another way in which we can kind of think about doing this is we call this the, uh, the ABCs of counseling. Similar but different way of looking about this. If you look about this, we look about it this way, that there are basically three different phases that sometimes we take people on a journey of through the awareness stage where they, they are taught and they're understood, okay, this is what God's word says, this is how I'm supposed to understand my situation, my circumstances, the people that are in me, understand more deeper things about my heart, and then they go to a brokenness stage where they come and say, based on all this awareness, all this learning that's been happening inside of me, I, I, I want to make that right with God. Like, I feel conviction. I feel a desire and a motivation to want to go before God and confess my sins or go before God and ha- let Him make me right again or go before God and, and enter into right fellowship with Him again. And then you're ready to enter the change phase of things where you actually start living out in your practical life the things that you learned in the awareness stage and the promises and the commitments or the recommitments that you made there in the brokenness stage. And so often, so much of discipleship, so much of counseling, so much of what we do with the church skips over what I think is probably one of the most important parts of the transformation and change process, and that's the brokenness. That's the brokenness part. If we simply just taught people and then they did something, if we simply just knew better than we would automatically do better, then we would just, we would have fixed all of life's problems long time ago. We just teach people, just educate people, tell them, tell them, tell them, tell them what they need to know. And obviously, if you know better, then you'll do better, right? Isn't that how we operate in life? You know better, you do better? No, that's not, 
It's not how it works in life. There has to be that transformation change. There has to be that experience with God along the way where you begin to trust him and look into him and allow him to lord over your life and to authoritatively, but with a sweet character, say, my sweet dear brother and sister, these things are wrong and these things are right and you need to make this right in your heart and you need to do this, not independently, but alongside of me through oftentimes repentance and brokenness and correction. And so... Uh, as we dive into our uh, scripture this morning, one more little added bonus that I want to give to you because I think it will help in the context is there are essentially three different types of counseling uh, that I think that we experience or discipleship that might happen. I, I really uh, could almost look at the word counseling as a synonym for discipleship or look at it as another word for saying sanctification. But think about this, not only in my context as a pastor and as a counselor, but your context. When somebody comes to you and says, hey, can we talk? When a child comes to you, a friend comes to you, a family member, it, it typically falls into one of these three different conversations. They're either going through some kind of suffering and they're looking to you for help and encouragement and hope. That's one way in which we could look at that. Or maybe they're coming to you with some wisdom. I don't know what to do in this situation. I don't know how to discern this, what's going on. I don't know what God's will is for me to make my next move and step. And then oftentimes, a little bit more, the more classical version of counseling is change uh, counseling, where something in my life needs to change. Something needs to, it was one way and now it needs to be a different way. And oftentimes, sin is involved in that. And contrary to popular belief, biblical counseling is not on a hunt for sin in people's life, as if that's the only thing that we want to try and do. It's just talk with me, share with me, I'm going to find the sin, call you out on it, make you feel horrible about it, and then that's the only thing that we're going to, uh, to do about it. That's not, that's not at all the heart of God or the character of God. Sin is involved in a, in a loving God, just like a loving parent goes to his children and sometimes says, my sweet daughter or my sweet son, there are some things that need to change in your life. You need to understand differently. You need to think differently. You need to act differently. You need to speak differently. That's that part of maturing up and growing. And we understand that as parents oftentimes, but we can't lose that when it comes to sanctification or transformation and change. And so I want to kind of go point by point uh, a little bit in the ways in which God's word is profitable and help us understand this a little bit. And I think it will also serve as a little bit of a counseling uh, appetizer, if you will, uh, to give you kind of a broad stroke of some of the things we look at and talk about in the counseling ministry. So let's zero in on the first way in which God's word is profitable. And it says that it is profitable for teaching. Another way of thinking about that is simply that it's just truth. Teaching is understanding and reading from God's word truth. We see in what is oftentimes the mission verse in Matthew 28, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then here's that word. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We have to teach them in order to make disciples. And a couple of the ways in which we go about teaching people is, is first of all, how we understand God. How we understand God is one of the most pivotal ways in which God wants us to understand inside of his Bible. A couple of ways that I would, uh, I would lay before you now is that, number one, that God is all-powerful, and that God is holy, and that God is gracious, and God is just, and lastly, that God has an agenda for our lives, that God has an agenda for our lives that we don't have the power or the authority to be able to write that for ourselves, but yet we are called to submit to that authority 
and to submit to God's agenda for our lives. Probably the best verse that I have found when it comes to describe as we teach people in discipleship and sanctification and counseling about what God's agenda or what God's goal is for their life is found in Matthew 22. It's a very familiar passage. Many of you know that. It says, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I could sum up God's goal for your life, his will for you in four words, and it's this, love God and love others. Until you are called home, until the rapture happens, our goal in life is to love God and love others. And I wish it was just as easy as we understand that, and we told you, and now we can just automatically go and do it. But sanctification and transformation and maturing up in Christ is never just as easy as just knowing it and then automatically do it, but we have to go through the process. But this is the goal for which God created us and gave us life, is to love Him and to love other people. A few other things that I want you to understand as we think about the teaching of God's Word as a process. Another one is the understanding of man, the understanding of ourselves. Now, admittedly, this verse found in Romans 3 is not the warm, fuzzy verse of the morning. I I get that. But I want you to read this with an open heart now, and I'll illustrate it in a few ways to help you you get it. But read these words and pay close attention to the phrases that that are in yellow. God's Word says this about you and me. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." This world would have us believe, contrary to this verse and other verses like it, that we come into this world good, or maybe at best we come into this world neutral. And through nature and nurture and people and circumstances, they have influence over us and they change us and they transform us and they make us who we are. And the best we could probably try and do is try and live a life that has some kind of meaning, reach some kind of success, or at least just try and be happy in this world to try and somewhat redeem to get back to a good place in which we came into this world and were born into. That is not the beginning place when you understand God's word, when you understand original sin of where we come from. Contrary, what God's word says is that we come into this world broken from the word go. Out of a mother's womb, a child is born into original sin. It knows how to disobey. It knows how to talk back. It knows how to do these things. When when did you ever sit down, if you're a parent or a grandparent, sit down and share with your little one, okay, today we're going to talk about how to hit brother and sissy, okay? Let's let's practice this together. Okay, you take your hand, you ball up a fist, you rear back, and then you extend. Let's all practice. Here, little sister, come here, let's practice. Little brother's going to hit you. No, we don't do that. We don't teach our children how to talk back or to have little attitudes or how to do these types of things. They, they come into this world little experts in knowing how to do this. On the contrary, we have to teach them how to be nice and how to share and how to be kind and not hit your little sister and not hit your little brother 
and how not to drive your parents crazy on the way home from Dollywood here recently. That's a little personal, but I'll share that with you because I trust you when you're in a safe place. Well, that's how it happens. And so we come into this world broken from the word, go, nature and nurture and people and circumstance certainly, certainly are influential. They certainly are a contributing factor into all of this, but they don't form us and make us into who we are according to God's word. But hopefully along that way you get saved and you get transformed. You start living your life underneath the authority of God and underneath his word and your agenda becomes to love God and to love other people. And you do that in spite of people and circumstances and nature and nurture and everything else. Now I'm not minimizing the difficult things that we go through or the families that we grew up in, but I don't believe that those things trump God's plan for us and his ability to transform us and change us in spite of those things. And so God's word helps us to understand our own sin nature and our need for transformation and change, our need for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Another way in which I think you need to understand man is that we are both material and immaterial beings. Okay, this is, this is not difficult. I am obviously a human being and I have hands and feet and a mouth and eyes and a mouth that's working right now, but, but I'm not just that. I have an immaterial part of me as well. Scripture used, loves to use four words to describe the immaterial part of every single one of us. Those parts of us which you can't see, uh, you can't look at it under a microscope, but they exist inside of us. And in those four words, the soul, the spirit, the heart, and the mind. We know this from God's word. In Hebrews 4.12, simply mentions both of these. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the divisions of the soul and spirit, those those words, of the joints and of marrow, physical, and discerning, listen to this, even the thoughts and, and intentions of the heart. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is so important. Another way in which I think we, in God's teaching, the way in which we understand this, is understanding the root of our sin, the root of our sin. And this is probably the part when I really started to read my Bible that it stretched my understanding and it stretched my truth of being able to trust not only the, the God's authority but his, his character that when he speaks as my creator, he is speaking from a place of understanding, from a place of he is the creator, I am the creation, and I can trust when he speaks truth about me. And so one of the things I want you to see is that man loves to blame the body oftentimes for the things that God holds the soul and the spirit responsible for. Let me read that quote again to you. Man loves to blame the body for the things that God holds the soul and spirit responsible for. Let me show you in three very powerful, very poignant verses. The first one is found in James chapter 4. It says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you. When I read that with, uh, with married couples automatically, like, it's her, it's him, it's them. If they would just stop, then I would. That's why we're arguing. It's not what God's word says. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires? Remember that word that battle within you. You desire, but you do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. A second one is found in Mark chapter 7. It says this, he, being Jesus, went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. Look at this, for it is from within, out of a person's, read that word out loud, heart, 
that evil thoughts come. So out of my heart comes evil thoughts, and then thoughts yield the following sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil things come from inside and defile a person. Lastly, going back to James, James chapter 1 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So if I'm struggling to love God and love other people, I cannot point the finger at God and say, It's your fault. You're the one who's bringing this stuff. You're the one behind all this. Nope, that's not what God's Word says. It says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then there's another process here. I could have preached this verse to you as well this morning. Then desire, when it has conceived, give birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, some of y'all may be thinking, okay, I heard words like desire. I heard words like lust. I heard like deceitful desire. But like, what, 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 what is that? I don't, I don't really live in a world where I think that I just constantly go around desiring sinful things all the time. Well, I don't know that we're necessarily talking about all the spectacular and all the, the big headline kind of sins as if everybody's walking around with a desire to go and murder somebody or rob a bank or lie all the time, those types of things. But it is probably more in the subtleties of your heart, more of lists that look like this one up on the screen, that could oftentimes the desires that live in your heart kind of fit into two, three different categories. You have just plain old-fashioned good desires, you have neutral desires, and then you have what I call just naughty desires. But any desire on that spectrum can become something that the human heart can crave for. It can come from a place where it would be nice if I had it, I would appreciate it, all those types of things, to a demand, to a need, to a have to, to where I could start to tell you stories about how people sin in different ways, shapes, forms, and intensities and severities because they're not getting something that may or may not be represented on this screen. And this is only a fraction of the ones that I could, I could show you uh, going on here. But when you think about these are the type of desires that live inside of your heart according to God's root as the root reason why we do what we do at the place of worship is why I'm willing to sin against God and sin against other people in order to get what I want. And that was something that I did not have the understanding of the language to be able to accurately diagnose my heart when I was failing to consistently love God and love other people. I was just blaming people and circumstances for why I wasn't doing that. I was expecting first them to change, then I would change. And all the while, God says, no, you change first. And what needs to change about you is your desires. Sometimes these desires need to have more of an open hand, open, open posture when it comes to your longing for these and how much you think about these things. Well, let's move on. Another way in which our, our verse this morning tells us that uh, this process goes is once we are teaching and we begin to absorb and understand some of the things we just have, we recognize that rebuking needs to take place. And rebuking is simply just the acknowledgement before God that this is false. Based on what you told me, based on what you described to me and helped me see about desires and about heart issues and everything else, I can now look at my understanding, I can look at my life, I can look at the words and the, and the actions that I do and claim those as faults based on your authority and your character, God. I think about two verses, Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not 
according to Christ. You see, Christ is the standard. His word, his authority inside of his word is the standard for which we would look at any way in which we think, understand, interpret how we do things, why we do things, and everything else. It sits under the authority of God's word and it sits under his character so that we can trust sometimes the challenging and difficult things that he says about us. Another way in which God's word helps us in this process is through correction. So now that we are taught, and now that we see, okay, what I have been doing is, is wrong, now I need to sit and stand and confess truth back to God, that this is true, or that this is right. I love these two verses that I'll put on the screen uh, here. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and the perfect will. And then, listen, this. <laughs> People love me and hate me when I pull out this verse and start reading this, and this is one that I oftentimes in my own life, in my relationships with other people, have to confess to God that this is true because my human heart wants to rebel against this so quickly. But it says this in Matthew chapter 7, 3 through 5, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eyes? Or do you not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye. And then this H word gets me every single time I read it. It says, you hypocrite. You hypocrite, how dare you? It's not about them changing first. It's about you changing first. You do this for an audience of one. You be the mature one. You do this for my glory. You do this to love God and love other people. And there's a process there that he lays out. He says, first, you take the log out of your own eye. I have to, in my spirit, because of teaching and because of rebuking, come to agree with God to say, that is the first place. Lord, I could tell you all about this person or that person and all the things they have done wrong, but Lord, I'm going to trust you in the process that you have laid for me because of your authority, because your character, that I'm going to do me first and I'll let you deal with the other people in my life that I'm in conflict with or I'm in strife with or not getting along with, but I will do me first and I will take the log out of my own eye and then that will do something to me. And it says, number two, then you will see clearly when I do me first, when I trust the word of God, I see people, I see circumstances differently, and then three, then I do the work of discipleship to take the speck out of my brother's eye. But I don't do this well, and I don't see clearly if I don't first submit to God's word and stand on that place that this is true and this is right, it's not easy, it's not natural, but I trust you, God, that correction is where I need to be. And this is how I'm going to start thinking. I'm not going to be thinking me-focused. I'm going to be thinking you-focused. And then lastly, we look at how God's word trains us. And this is simply how you live righteously or right. It says, and uh, if I had more time, I could, I could unpack some of this. We call Ephesians chapter 4 the put on and put off principle. It says, put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And the spirit of your mind, read that, see that again. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And Romans chapter 8 says, for those who live according to the flesh, here's how we train. We learn to set our minds, and I don't mean brain minds, I mean heart minds. We learn to set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and pleasing. And so the Word of God helps us to be able to literally control our thoughts 
as we live it out according to teaching, according to rebuking, according to correction. Lord, I'm going to control what you've called me to be able to control. I'm going to set my mind, my heart mind, on the things of the Spirit, not the things of the flesh. I've been down the flesh road before. It didn't go good. It wasn't easy. It wasn't God-glorifying. It wasn't loving God and loving other people. And so we train people to be able to do that, or rather not even us, but God's word because God loves us, because God wants to see us be beautiful ambassadors and a reflection of his glory back to him. We submit ourselves to the word of God to be able to help us to be able to live in a right way, which is always God glorifying and it's always good for you and it's always good for everyone around you. It's always good for everyone around you. Everybody wins and nobody loses. And so when we think about how God's word is there in order to teach us and to rebuke us at times and to correct us and then lastly to train us to be able to do that consistently over time, not immediate. God's standard is never perfection, but it's always faithfulness. We're always growing in our Christ-likeness. We are always maturing. That is a process. This is not a one-time thing uh, where this first steps into our lives and sanctification and spiritual growth, but it's an ongoing thing. And so there's a question here before us as you, you take all this in and you sit and say, okay, well, that was, a, that was a great sermon. Thanks, Ashton. DJ was out of town, so nice of you to come and share with us. But you, you sit at a crossroads to be able to say as a Christian or maybe who's somebody who needs to come to Christ for the first time of what am I going to do with God's word? When I hear it preached uh, Sunday morning, week in and week out, when I sit in my small group and my small group leader opens God's word, am I simply just going to just hear it sort of, kind of, or am I going to let it do its process and its work in me? We're big on quiet times around here. We have a Bible reading plan available in the Next Steps corner, and so you, when you wake up in the morning and you read God's word, are you going to allow it to do its work in you, or are you going to be stiff-necked and stubborn and push away from it and say, God, that's fine, or I hear it, but I'm not going to lean into it and let it do its work in me. And the reason that you can trust it is because of his character and his authority that is there. One of the things I've recently been learning about is holiness, is that holiness does mean to be separate from God, but it's not as if God is just perfect and never sin and can never relate, and so therefore I'm over here and God's over there, and I'm like, I, I can't really relate to you. You're not in my world. You've never screwed up. You've never struggled or anything, so I'm going to go talk to somebody else because you're hard to relate to. That, that's a false way of thinking about the holiness of God. The holiness of God says, I can trust you. I can come to you because you're not going to pick on me. You're not going to make fun of me. You're not going to judge me. You're not going to gossip about me. You're not going to put me down. You have nothing but love in your heart, and I can trust you. When you speak through your word, I can submit to that, and it will be good for me. It's not always easy. It's not always fun, but it is always good, and there's no more greater adventure in your life than to conform your life and heart to the image of Christ, where you can stand before God and say, God, I did what you called me to do through the power of your word. I loved God, and loved other people that is our mission that is what we are called to do and obviously if you need help with that as a congregation we are here and that's what our biblical counseling ministry is for but i'll be honest with you we need more of you guys to be able to do that there is a lot of y'all and there's only a handful of us 
We have trainings each and every single uh, year where we bring some of the best and the brightest minds around biblical counseling. I'm not one of them, but we bring the smart people in. And they come and they teach. And we help to be able... We uh, help people to be able to understand the truths of God's word and how to be able to come alongside and rightly divide the word of God in the real problems and hardships and traumas of people's life. And I'm asking you that if this resonated inside of your heart at all, if, it, if this is all interesting or captivated you, do you think I could see myself helping other people, maybe as a formal counseling in the ministry, or maybe just I just want to love people better in my community, then I'm asking you, click on that QR code. It will take you to a job form and you will be telling us, hey, I'm not necessarily committing to become a counselor. I just want to know more about this. As you guys do trainings, as you guys get involved in this, I want more of knowing how to make disciples in a more better and a more biblically focused way. We would love to be able to help you with that. As we close out our service, I have to invite uh, my right-hand person, and that's Ms. Becca Fisher. I would not know about biblical counseling. I certainly wouldn't know about our training organization called the Association of uh, the uh, ACBC Association of Certified Biblical Counselors had God not brought her into our church through her husband Ken who is our executive pastor I really couldn't tell you where maybe out in the weeds or over there but I would not be and us as a church would not be where we are which fits beautifully our theology and our preaching ministry of how we care for souls here at Church at the Mill and so Beck, I just want to invite you just to pray for us as a congregation pray for our ability to yield to God's word and to trust it in all of the environments in all the context in which we find ourselves. Thanks. Will you bow with me, please? Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for today's sermon. Uh, I pray also along with Ashton that uh, this resonates with uh, us as a congregation to understand the significance of uh, this ministry at this church at this time. Father, I want to first pray for the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Uh, for over 50 years, Father, you have equipped men and women and saw fit to put them in specific places to um, to equip the local church to care for the hurt and the struggling and the discouraged, uh, for the ones that need wisdom. Father, you've uh, helped that organization through gifts and resources to equip us as a local church and even internationally. So I pray that you continue to bless their efforts. Father, I want to pray for our counselors. Uh, we do have a handful of counselors that have painstakingly put in their own time and energy and effort and voluntarily come. Uh, they have become equipped um, to be an instrument in your hands in that counseling room and go uh, work with someone face to face. And they weep and they pray and they help and they teach. Uh, they train, they correct, they reproof. And, uh, Father, they, uh, they work hard at just helping others and coming alongside them. And we do need more. We do need more people. So I pray, Father, that anyone that is here that is moved by this uh, word today, that they will reach out and ask, how do I become a part of this? So I, I pray that you also give our counselors rest when they are weary. And just to remind them, Father, that it's the Holy Spirit that guides the transformation of the heart. Father, I pray for our counselees both present and future. I pray, Father, that those that are hurting, that, that stay silent, will speak out, will reach out, and know that there is a hand here to help them, that they no longer have to sit and suffer in silence, but they can come to their local church and speak with a brother or sister in Christ that truly loves them, that truly wants them to see them to the other side of their hurt and their struggle, that they can understand uh, that your truth, you promise us that you will redeem all of our situations, Father, and we just want to be there to help. So I pray for our counselees. 
And then, Father, I pray for the leadership of this church. I am so very grateful for them, that they have the vision, the stewardship, uh, and uh, just the, the foresight to understand and embrace this methodology of counseling, that they see it as a help to this church, that they see it as an extension of the gospel, and that uh, they continue to just uh, support and be blessed by the ministry itself. Last but not least, I want to pray for our brother Ashton, for uh, it is with his obedience and his leadership that he stepped out on faith and something that he wasn't even sure about, but Father, he did it anyway. And I'm so grateful that he has led us so faithfully. I pray protection over him and his wife Tracy and his family. I pray that you continue to strengthen them, that you will continue to bless them. I pray specifically for Tracy, Father. I know that at times in the middle of dinner, Ashton has to get up and take a phone call or leave and go take care of a crisis. And I'm thankful for that obedience in him, but I'm thankful that he has a suitable helper, that she supports and encourages him in the way that she does. And she so faithfully serves this church in that way and in her family. Father, we love you. I pray as that we go out, we share the gospel with those that need it, and that we uh, just continue to love God and love others. In Jesus' name, amen.